welcome to Stumble Upon. I'm Austin. And I'm Emily. Today we are discussing Sister Sister, written and directed by Bill Condon. As always, there'll be plenty of fucking spoilers. But if that doesn't scare you, the alligators might. So keep your hands in the boat and don't piss off the ghosts, because we are in the bayou with some badass sisters. Austin, would you like to give us the synopsis of Sister Sister? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the synopsis that I found for Sister Sister is, two sisters turn their family mansion in Louisiana into a guest house. One of their guests is an aide to a congressman and turns their lives inside out. Did I, we ever find out what he did? We do right off the top. Like the first the like outside of his introduction of interrupting uh Jennifer Jason Lee's character dancing and chatting with uh, Etienne uh the next scene when he's having breakfast he mentions his, mentions that he's a congressman's aide. And you know what that's pretty on brand. Yeah, I mean all the khakis. Like, well, yeah, between between his costume and also just sort of what congress I, and uh, l- let me say that it's aged really well, his terrible clothes, with what is worn in Washington, D.C. Because <laughs> this it's is pretty the, on brand. That uniform hasn't fucking changed. It hasn't changed. No. No, it's the same thing. It's, it's the like, same thing. Can we can we just find something that's timeless but pleated um, and, and khaki? Can, can it be timeless? Can that be like a polo shirt? Can you look like you can either go golfing to the country club or enact horrible social change all in one, uh, one we can outfit? Do that. We can do that. And I'll definitely make sure to tell you within the first sentence of meeting you what it is I do. Yeah. It's pretty on brand. It's the job equivalent of going to Harvard. So what you're saying is the synopsis <laughs> pointed out. No, I picked that up. Uh, what we should have all seen as foreshadowing yeah was this is a congressman's aide yeah it, it, therefore you should be afraid it's all good rhyme it's also <laughs> it's also really uh, like aged well that congressmen have always been terrible like people who work like it's almost like films and and media has been like hey guys you know those people who run the country and the people who work for them they're generally terrible people <laughs> so foreshadowing okay foreshadowing. so that's a, actually not a terrible no though, synopsis though i will Pretty say vague yes though i will say they turn their family home it sounds like it's like a money pit situation like the movie <gasps> the money pit <laughs> oh no no i want to see that blending right. of a film well, tom hanks meets jennifer jason lee in, in a, the Louisiana Bayou, and their their house is haunted by ghosts. Not like ghosts, the television <gasps> show. No, but I want that. So Money Pit meets ghosts is actually ghosts. The, yeah, the British ghost, not the American ghost. No, we're talking about BBC. Yeah. <gasps> okay. Yes. <laughs> but then you know you get a little bit of murder, uh-huh. you get a little threatening. So we can change it up a bit. We yeah. can like get it all dark. Yeah, Southern like, Gothic. Yeah, get it all like sexy, sexy, yeah. but. With Tom Hanks. Once you bring Tom Hanks into it, the sexy sexy goes right out the door. Just well, I'm sure zing. I'm sure that works for some people. I'm I'm sure there's somebody that Tom Hanks is like the perfect. Like they're like they see him in Forrest Gump and they're like, there's never been a hotter person. I just well, I mean his wife. Right. It, both of his wives. Probably more the second than the first. Yeah, well. What's her name again? Rita Wilson. Yeah, she's lovely. Yeah, she was really good in Kimmy. She yeah, she was fantastic in Kimmy. Yeah. She's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's delightful. Yeah. I think she's sexy. Yeah. But I don't know about Tom Hanks. Well, you know, to each their own. If you have it doesn't a Tom, work for me. If you have a Tom Hanks thing, like I'm, it doesn't I, work for me. I mean But I'd totally like hang out with him and yeah. have like a beer. For for being like kind of like the prototypical like all American, like the ideal for a lot of people of like, oh, that's the everyman of America. He like is is that safe saying then that the everyman of America is totally uh sexually neutered? Right? Why is the everyman always a white guy too? Yeah, I don't know. Like a middle aged white guy. Well he wasn't always middle aged. He was he was even uh the every- Tom Hanks or the Everyman? Because <laughs> I'm aware Tom. that Tom Hanks wasn't always middle aged. <laughs> Though he could have been. He like he could have been. He could have been like just I mean, eternal. I like saw he, him as Flash. He wasn't super old in that or true. big. He 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 could be like a Dorian Gray situation that he was for a long time. He's like I always captured my myself in the mirror, and then eventually oh. like I aged. Oh, instead he had a kid. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about Colin Hanks. I think he's nice. Yeah, Colin <laughs> Hanks is wonderful. The other one. <laughs> it's the other one. Chet. 
Well, yeah. that was the name they picked. <laughs> yeah. So this is what it was going to happen. <laughs> he's the Chettiest Chet. <laughs> As Colin is the Colin, yes, Colin. Yeah, he's peak Chet. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So should we talk about the film? <laughs> yeah, we're all like, here for today. Yeah, I, I like it. I really, really enjoyed this film. Like, me too. It's it kind of hits a sweet spot for me of cinema that I. I grew up with, like, I honestly, I hadn't seen this film until uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, but, I had never heard of it before. Yeah, and, and I had never heard of it before, like, Vinegar Syndrome decided to do a restoration of it. And, I, and, and having it now kind of in my life, I'm really, really happy about that. Austin, before we go into that. Uh, what is vinegar syndrome? Will you share with people what it is? Oh, vinegar syndrome is a uh, is a smaller uh, company that re releases and restores films. They're kind of like Criterion Collection, except they are uh, more genre based or more like let's say obscure. Yeah, obscure. Maybe maybe the right word is exploitation based. Like mm-hmm. the films the films that they they aim to put out. Uh, touch in different realms in ways that I don't think that uh, Criterion would feel comfortable with or uh, feels that is right for their brand. And what's kind of lovely about Vinegar Syndrome is they don't seem to have any sort of, like, like what's the word? They don't seem to have any sort of uh, belief that there is a type of film that's right. Mm-hmm. Like you could have Vinegar Syndrome and the companies that the that it works with put out something like Shiva Baby or put out something like A Woman's Torment. Mm-hmm. Like and they are completely different ends of the spectrum of the type of film that you could see in uh in the world. Like one is an art house darling and the other is a uh exceptionally well-made exploitation uh or an exceptionally well-made hardcore film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of they do like the cult-based films, or mm-hmm. as you said, genre-based films. Um, in fact, there's a, a little breakdown on their website about who they are. Our namesake is a constant reminder of what we're fighting against. Simply put, the vinegar syndrome describes a chemical reaction that deteriorates motion picture film over time. Film preservation is a race against time, especially with long-neglected genres and underground films. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great uh, description. It's almost like they know themselves. Yeah. It's a, so yeah. they did a great job describing themselves. Yeah, it better than what I tried to mumble through without no, you did looking a good it up. Job. No, I, I did a fine job. This, the, but you know, yeah. they paid somebody to figure out yeah. how to define them, and yeah. they did a better job. Yeah, my job was beige. It's like the my job of describing them was, was like the khaki pants. Yeah, it was. It was the khaki pants of pants. Yeah, it, like my, my that was my description <laughs> of it. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Anyway, like speaking, so you discovered so, Sister Sister through Vinegar Syndrome, exactly. And and Sister Sister is that like in that description, the the, the synopsis that I gave, it is not it, the, like that description sounds so banal to me, rather than like fun and interesting. Ghost, like, sexy. They don't mention that it's horror. Southern Gothic. They don't mention that there are ghosts involved. They don't like they, it. Doesn't mention anything that would actually grab me to want to see it. Yeah. Like it makes me wonder what the VHS box cover description was of the movie, which is yeah. maybe why nobody watched it. Was it that bad? Yeah, it I, <laughs> if it even really ever had a, a release <laughs> in a, on, on that. Yeah. A, and the film itself, like so the film co-stars uh Jennifer Jason Lee and and Eric Stoltz. And Eric Stoltz to me has always been a really kind of fascinating cinema character because the thing that I remember him most from is being the drug dealer in Pulp Fiction and being the creepy d- guy in the John Hughes film that he was in. Um, and for me, he was the tutor in Little Women ah, from the 90s with um, with Winona Ryder. And, yeah. and Susan Sarandon mm-hmm. and, and Kirsten Dunst. I fucking love that movie. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so he was the, the kind of weird, dorky tutor. Yeah. And then falls in love with Meg, which I was like, what? He, Meg can do better than that. But- he, this Eric Stoltz, I'm like, yeah, girl. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like what I think about when I think about Eric Stoltz before seeing this film, I've always thought of him as the drug dealer, and then thinking of him as kind of the weakest part of the films that I've seen, and always replaceable and and not really uh, all that interesting to me. Like I I hadn't had a moment where I was like, oh, I I get this, I like this, and it, mm-hmm. like. Like there's the long history of finding out about Eric Schultz being replaced in Back to the Future after them shooting a whole bunch of the film, and then explain that. Like he was, 
he was initially cast as Marty McFly in Back to the Future. And then after shooting maybe a third of the film, maybe more, maybe less, don't know offhand, uh, they were looking at the, uh, Robert Zemeckis, the director of the film, was looking at the dailies and was like, this is not working. So they replaced him and, uh, and they fired him and replaced him with... Uh, with whatever his name Michael J. Fox with Michael J. Fox that is so heartbreaking it is like I can't like we've had like uh, in we had an experience on our set where one of our actors thought that they had forgotten a piece of uh of like costume a costume uh and they and they showed up on set and they were really distraught and they thought that they were going to get fired and replaced because their experience has been that they are they as an actor are infinitely replaceable at a moment's notice if you do anything wrong. And I can't imagine the amount of stress that that must put actors under when they show up at set. Not only do are they standing in front of the camera, not only getting told that they're doing things right or wrong as a on a consistent basis as the, the blueprint of their job, trying to understand the human condition, but also being afraid that when like their face might not be the right thing, and that they are infinitely replaceable at a drop of a hat. That that shit is scary as hell to me. We also had an actor who, because they did such a good job performing it, we were able to wrap up the scene within, I don't know, three, four takes. We got it. We're in the can. We're like, okay, great. Let's move on. And they confessed to me later that they thought they had been fired in that moment. And that we were going to come up with somebody else. And I was like, no, that's you did a great job. Yeah. You were so good. We were good. Yeah. And we were done. And and it was after that that they started to settle uh, I, th- I hope yeah. and um, felt better. I know it's it's amazing to me how much the stories we've heard from our actors about how quickly they're replaced, mm-hmm. how even in the moment they're filming and then suddenly there's another actor that appears in the background that they're like, yeah, let's swap you mm-hmm. with somebody else. And it's just so, oh. Yeah, so I my heart goes out for Eric Stoltz in, that, in, in regards to... Uh, being replaced in Back to the Future. But re- watching his performance in this film and... and Fantastic. Like, and in some ways, con- <laughs> comparing it to this kind of banal, basic uh, synopsis, like, it isn't until I actually watched the film and seen him do something interesting and really compelling that I now get it. Like, I feel like Eric Stoltz should have been, like... A villain actor for his in, like he should have been yeah. like like George Hilton in the uh, in the case of the Scorpion's Tale mm-hmm. like like oh, yes like somebody sexy villain like somebody who's who is super sexy who's super attractive who's super interesting who you you there's something about him that you kind of want to root against but they're charming enough to make you keep like going oh I actually really like you I really want you to be part like I want to be part of this experience with you I just I I feel like he might have come along in the wrong era. Like today with the, the anti-heroes that are played, I think he would have been like a great, like better call Saul type of actor Mm -hmm. or uh, like, or even breaking bad, like something like that. Like even Jesse in, in breaking bad, the, the, Mm -hmm. like that would have been a really interesting role for him in today's era where people who are attractive can be also villains. And it Mm -hmm. isn't just like villains are the ones who have foreign accents or are scarred. Right. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Producers in the eighties, you guys get your shit together. Oh, they did. Huh? Mm -hmm. By growing old and us replacing them. Being replaced. Um, But, (laughs) but it is interesting. And you know, you makes me wonder maybe managers giving bad advice, Mm -hmm. agents not seeking out those roles, him not realizing that he was actually shining in moments like that Mm -hmm. because this film didn't do well. This film wasn't, discovered so i read a bunch of different reviews at the time this movie was released including Mm -hmm. one in the los angeles times and it shits on the movie Mm -hmm. it says that the director takes it too seriously it says that um the actors are talented but lifeless so Mm -hmm. i'm not really sure what the hell that means right the just the reviews are are dismissive minimizing full of doublespeak yes and also very patriarchal all the time yeah. I don't I don't know. I just I just find it so dismissive. And I suppose that's because I think that it is a genre piece for it's kind of underground. It's it, I can see why Vinegar Syndrome released it. Mm-hmm. Because of the mixture of the southern gothic, 
the horror elements, the thriller elements, the ghosts, the supernatural, mm-hmm. the um, it's just there's a lot going on, and it doesn't really dig into any of them super fully. It sort of just kind of plays with each one. It's sort of like, oh, we're gonna try all these on, and I think that's fun. Yeah, and obviously these reviewers are like. No, it must be a canon piece or nothing. Why are you wasting my time? Right, and and to touch base on the on on something I I think I alluded to mostly earlier was like this is this is the type of film from my childhood that I watched a lot. Like it's like the second bill on a, a, a in a triple triple feature. Like it's super entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's really quality work. There's a lot of thought that goes into it, but. Like, it might not be, like, it's not Citizen Kane, but nor is it trying to be. It's just mm-hmm. trying to be an entertaining piece of, of work. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's an hour and a half to help you pass the time and give you some thoughts and experiment in a in a different world. Like, it touches base on all those things, the Southern Gothic, which is really fascinating. Like, there's a whole bunch of films that I love that are Southern Gothic that, that, are, that range from, like, The Gingerbread Man to, which is a Robert Altman film, to... Uh, to Eve's Bayou. Like mm. there's so much fertile ground to talk about in different experiences for different people within the area that that it is or uh, that that it takes place or even like that wonderful film we saw at, at Mahoning last year, Eaten Alive, the the crocodile yes! film. Yes. That was so fun. And, and while it, I don't I think that's a Texas film, it's still the the, the that area of the south like around swampy. the around the Gulf that uh, the Gulf of Mexico that's just a fascinating rural position in America that doesn't maybe get as much highlight as it could. Well, there's a very interesting discussion of nature mm-hmm. uh, versus typically we're talking about Caucasians is mm-hmm. what, in cinema and in literature. So when you have European literature, you have more fear of, especially English literature, you have more fear of the kings, of the powers that be, mm-hmm. of the authority figures. And you get into America and you have a lot more of the fear of the wilds. Yeah. And so it's always, I always enjoy a good film where we take nature and, and everyone in town seems to be sort of afraid of the swampland, afraid of the, the house where the women live, mm-hmm. afraid of that space around them, except for Etienne. Yeah. And uh, the girls. Yeah. Well, not even both. I'd say uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character seems very at peace with the swamp. And, and, and to clarify quickly, like there are, there are three people who seem to work consistently on, uh, at, at the, the, bed and breakfast there's etienne there's uh judith ivy's character uh charlotte charlotte and then there's jennifer jason lee lucy like all all three of them basically run it's lucy and charlotte's uh bed and breakfast Mm -hmm. but etienne is kind of the handyman who lives on the swamp and has has a huge fucking hard on for (laughs) for 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 lucy yes he has a crush on her And, and and lucy like this is something that i think is one of my one of my favorite scenes in the film is the first thing it starts off with, which is something that I think is an underscore of the entirety of the film, which is Lucy's exploration of her own sexual debut. Mm-hmm. The film starts off with a fantasy of her having sex with a an un, unknown Faceless man. person. We yeah, it's, face. it's just a man who's having sex with her. And then she looks up and she looks up at the ceiling and there's a crack and then water starts to fall and then water dumps on her bed and she wakes up. Mm-hmm. She's drowning. Yeah. She's and he's and her her fantasy is pushing her under the water. Yep. And she's fighting now. So she's not happy anymore. Yeah. She seems very unhappy. But like but there's something really incredible about that fantasy that she's having. Both that it's a fantasy. Like like and that we should view it as such. Like it's not something that she actually wants to have happen. Mm-mm. She doesn't want like because it's not a fetish. Right. It's something that she is exploring in her own subconscious about the things that she wants. And it's her desire. And that is then played out through the rest of the film. Her desire for uh, Eric Stoltz's character, her desire to uh, become somebody different than who she is, than the person who has to take her pill before she goes to bed, somebody who had uh, a mental breakdown earlier in life, somebody who has to be sheltered and, and coddled and 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 shuttered in in a lot of ways. She is trying to find her way to her own identity throughout the entirety of the film, making good and bad choices along mm-hmm. the way. As we do. But like that's her, like the film starts off with her fantasy being shown out mm-hmm. to 
push back about a bunch of the criticism that you've told me about from reading on the uh, of the film. Like, that's what the film's about. It's her pushing back. It's her, her boundaries. Her pushing yeah. her boundaries. And, and I know that by watching the films that we've watched in, in 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 our kind of history with cinema, like there's there isn't a lot of space for women's fantasies, especially sexual fantasies, to be just expressed and not judged in cinema mm-hmm. in Western. Uh, and American cinema specifically. Like, it's not something that we're like, yeah, that woman fantasized about this and then wasn't punished for it. Right. That doesn't happen. No, it is always the male fantasy. And and we are talking about heteronormative films right now. We're not yeah. talking about queer cinema. But in typical heteronormative cinema, you always get, you can have the male fantasy. Mm-hmm. You can have the woman have to enact the male fantasy. But the idea of the woman having... Her own fantasy mm-hmm. is not part of mainstream cinema. And I honestly believe that in part, that is why this did not do well. Yeah. Probably also because on the premiere screening, it turns out that the audio sync went out. Oh, God. And so it's real hard to get good reviews if your sync isn't lined up. Right. <laughs> and, and thinking. So heartbreaking. It's so fucking heartbreaking. Another fucking heartbreaking no. thing. Like, and thinking about. Uh, Thinking about a film we did, we talked about a, a few weeks ago, um, Desert Hearts. It's an, a, comparing that film's fantasy and that film's like uh, desirous intent. Like those two women, while they go through some shit together, at the end, they get on. She gets on the train. She gets with on him. the train. So like the fantasy isn't punished mm-hmm. in in that film. Like the fantasy and the hope of what you could do with your life and the life that you could have is open kind of like like that film is very much like the vision we have of a western like there's a wide open plane out there and you can make your own life Mm -hmm. in it whereas this film like she we meet her fantasy at the beginning and at the end of the film her fantasy comes back in the in the in the case of eric stoltz as a ghost now breaking through a window or breaking through a mirror and jumping at her, showing her in a way that the trauma that she had that led to part of her fantasy in the beginning of the film and the trauma she has now at the end of the film are tied. Mm-hmm. They're just different versions of that sort of, uh, of that sort of trauma. I mean, you can also say that the, her, you know, fantasy slash dream sequence slash nightmare mm-hmm. at the beginning is the foreshadowing of what happens because she does, end up with Eric Stoltz, really likes him, mm-hmm. and then he tries to drown her. Yeah. So that whole scene is repeated yes. as he's pushing her underwater, and then, ha yeah. jokes on you, because she's got ghosts on her side. Yeah, don't Deal fight. with that, bitch. Yeah, don't fight, a, don't fight a person who has ghosts on their side. If they have ghosts on your side, yeah. you got to step back, because you aren't going to win that fight. Yeah. It, unless you're in BBC ghosts, and they can't touch anything. Oh, except for the... Except for the... Computer. No, the computer. No, what's his name? Oh, I'm forgetting him from Dictatorists. Whatever, the politician. A, yeah. Yes, I nailed my story by forgetting everything. High five. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, so, back to this. Yeah, but, and, and it's funny you bring that up, because I really hadn't thought, I really hadn't put that together, the the connection of she, she in a way, it has second sight, because mm-hmm. she sees what's going to happen to her, and then it happens to her later, and the film is subtle enough to not beat you over the head with that. Mm-hmm. It's subtle enough to tell you that she sees ghosts mm-hmm. in a really wonderful story that she tells the guests mm-hmm. of the, at the, at the, who I loved. Yes. The, they're wonderful. But she tells everybody this, like there's in, in contrast to some of the negative reviews that have just, that highlighted the idea that they were beating you over the head. There's a lot of subtlety to what's going on. There's a lot of wonderful little shifts that are like, no, no, we're just going to put this out here and then the thing will happen. It's. We talked about this after we watched it the first time. It feels like this film was like thirty minutes longer and then got hacked up, yeah. and and shortened because yeah. there's so much to it that feels not n- not missing but truncated, like, like echo. There's echoes of something that we don't get to see. Yeah, and and, and it, I don't think that that would make it a better or worse film to have I longer. I it would make it a different film, and I really enjoy the one that I that I have seen so I don't want to I don't want to belabor that point. I did look it up to try to find out if if that is true. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything, but mm-hmm. there's barely anything written about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm interested in listening to the commentary track yeah. by the director on the DVD 
but other than on the Blu-ray, but other than that, I I don't know if yeah. it has been shortened. Yeah, and he's the writer too. So yeah. and, and and Bill Condon went on to make Dreamgirls and uh, and a film that I think is really now underrated because I never hear anybody talk about it. Uh, Gods and Monsters with mm-hmm. Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser, which is really really good. And the last two in the series of Twilight. Yes. Which is probably his greatest works ever. So, well, you know, we can't live in a world like there was, you know, no, frankly, honestly, there was uh, pre Renesme as an evil baby child. <laughs> and now there's post Renesme where we all know what that evil baby child is. Why do I have to know in my brain burned into my brain? Yeah. To it, be clear. Yeah. We will not be discussing Twilight on this podcast beyond this moment. Yeah, but we will be living in a post-Twilight world. We are all stuck in a post-Twilight world. Yeah. Having said that, I do love Kristen Stewart uh-huh. and Robert Pattinson. Yeah, and Lee Pace showing up in the last one. And, Was he? And, I don't even yeah, remember him in it. He's in it as and, well. And uh, Michael Sheen. Uh, Michael Sheen and D- D- Dakota Fanning. There's a I mean, lot of good actors. There's a lot of really talented people involved in the, in that film. And... Um, Line. 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 And... and, and there's a lot of acting happening. <laughs> is there? Yeah, it's not like it's it's the kind of acting that I would say is not good acting, <laughs> but it's it's acting. Like there are there people. There is a performance happening. Yeah, there are people performing. It's like well, the source material is so bad. Right. It it would be it would be equivalent to me performing Twilight. In a lot of ways. Oh, I don't know. I think you could do a pretty good job. No, I don't think I could. No? I, like, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not searching for a compliment here. I'm I, providing I, you with one. I, I think, I think I could do a, a mediocre to poor job. Like, uh, in, like, I think that people would be like, you know what? Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart really did give it their all after seeing my performance. I mean, Oscars everywhere. Yeah. You get an Oscar and you get an Oscar. Oh, God. <laughs> It's so bad. But again, yeah. the source material is terrible. Right. So. Yeah. Back to the movie, Sister, back, Sister. Back to Sister, Sister. Which is, oh, I really like this movie. Why do you really like it? I just, I like the fact that we dabble in so many different things. Like I, okay, so we've been watching a lot of Jalo films, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things about Jalo films, for anyone who doesn't know, is that many times they're used sort of as tr- like early travel vlogs, uh-huh. right? They're fake just like travel vlogs are fake. Yeah. Um, they're filled with beautiful people, just like travel vlogs are filled with beautiful people. Posing. Posing in beautiful yep. outfits that are probably provided by somebody. Yep. And they're just, they're fun because they take you to some place you typically don't get to go, in theory. Um, the English countryside or France or Italy or... or Greece. Greece, or, yeah, Spain. Where, uh, Australia for one. Yeah. yeah. So Jello films go all over the place and... I believe they work with many of the countries to help get funding and stuff. Yep. So this kind of feels like that to me. You you get to go travel and experience this one little piece of the swamp. Mm-hmm. And it feels like the swamp. The cinematography has like lots of, there's a lot of smokiness going on. There's a lot of trees. There's mysticism. And so I find this film a lot of fun because I enjoy being in this place. It feels very hot and sweaty. The rain. There's just a lot of... Um, sensory elements to it yeah and you can you can kind of fall into this movie really easily without having to put too much thought into it mm-hmm. and it's a good kind of travel space you know and yeah. and then you get and then you get your ghosts and if you're gonna bring ghosts or spookiness or paranormal activity like mm-hmm. i am fucking in i love it yeah it, it it hits kind of it's low end eroticism it has ghosts it, like there's just there's boobs and ghosts. What else do you need? Yeah, no, no ghost boobs though. No, well, not yet. Yet, well, there's. A, I'm sure there'll be a sequel. Yeah, ghost uh, boobs. Yeah, ghost boobs. The sequel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just been haunted by that boob. Like, <laughs> I'll write it. Yeah, and one of the other things I I really enjoy about this film, actually, is a bit surprising, which is the kind of dis- the discussion of mental health. So it's pretty early days for people to be discussing mental health. And the 80s wasn't really a boom time for people to get treatment. But you have a character. And I feel like this is where the the reviews actually piss me off. Because the character of Lucy is found to be unstable. We know that she has been in treatment. We know she takes her medicine. Mm -hmm. And we know that she is fighting her sister to continue to take the medicine. 
And her sister gets really mad. Uh, Judith Ivy gets really mad. Her character gets mad when I can't remember. I think it's her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend says, you know, you're just protecting her. You're give, you're not letting her get better. I can't quite remember the scene, but I feel Cleave. like it's Cleve. Yeah. Who I love that actor from yeah. Eyes on Fire. Yeah. He's so great. Um, Cleve. Cleve. I mean, just if you're going to name your kid Cleve, it's like naming your kid Chet. Like, what yeah. was your plan? Yeah, yeah. Cleve. <laughs> it's not a good strategy. It, it, just as a quick aside, do you think Cleve is, is short for something? Well, everybody wants to move to the Cleve Lemon. Yeah, that's why they call it the Cleve. I don't know. Uh, Cleveland? No, maybe. It's probably, it's got to be Cleveland. He's got to be named Cleveland. Cleveland, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But then maybe, maybe it's Cleve. Like, we met a Cletus. I didn't Cletus. think that, I didn't think that was a name for a while. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Working remember, at Ruby Tuesdays. I remember meeting Cletus. That was dark times. That was not a great idea. We're so glad we have a master's degree and I, now we're working at Ruby Tuesdays. It's a, it's a great way to uh, build up your self-esteem with after Cletus getting a master's dropping off all the worst customers to, to us. Yeah. Going from Dublin, Ireland to Rehoboth, Delaware and working at Ruby Tuesdays. In the winter. Yeah, not... And like, for anybody who knows Rehoboth, Delaware now, yeah. no, 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 no. No, 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 no. There's stuff to do now in the winter. There wasn't then. Yes. Anyway, skip to the end. Back to the point. Back to the point. So one of the things I really liked about the film was the conversation about mental health, even though it was just sort of a perimeter story. And what I liked about it was the showing of Lucy kind of starting to rebel. I feel better, so I don't need to take this medication. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte being like, yes, you feel better because you are taking the medication and because I'm working my fucking ass off to protect you and to make sure you're going to keep getting better because you don't remember how bad you were. Uh And I do. And I know what we've been through. And I liked that because that was very realistic. In my experience with, with many different people with mental health issues, there's always a point Where as they get better, they think, okay, cool, I don't need to do this anymore. And Mm -hmm. you're like, no, the reason you're better Mm -hmm. is because you're doing this. Please don't stop doing this. And it's it's a fight every time. And so I really appreciated that about the film. Yeah, I I I I agree. Like the the amount of friends that I've had and that I have that I've seen struggle with their mental health and go through periods of time where they're like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. Like I don't need it anymore. And then immediately followed by uh like it, uh, issues arising from mm-hmm. from not taking care of their mental health felt very much uh, seen in in this film of like and something that the film does really interesting is play with uh, with Charlotte's culpability and Charlotte's like our belief in her because one thing that Jalo films do well and, and films that that touch base on this do well is. They try to make doctors out to be villains at times and or or people who are trying to take care of your health. They make them the villains so that you're actually what the film what films tend to do in this case is be like, actually, if you were off it, you'd see the world clearly. And when you see the world clearly, you can see all of how the web's inner inner intertwined right right? and so the film starts to lean towards charlotte being maybe not the best person for lucy to be around right around the time that matt eric stoltz's character starts to insinuate into lucy's life how much she's right Mm -hmm. like he turns into this wonderful devil character of like no no you're fine like these are the things that you should do you should be romantically involved in me with me you should be you should be your own free person you should be like he's just leaning on her to move her the direction that he wants her to go Mm -hmm. somebody who is susceptible to to change because she doesn't because with her mental health issues, she wants to be seen as a full person rather than us viewing her as a full person, regardless of her mental health issues. And also because she's a child. Yes. Like she's, a, we're guessing 19, yeah. maybe 20. Yeah. If that. And so you also have that element of the transformation from childhood to adulthood. Mm-hmm. The fact that she's very, very isolated. So she's still playing very childish games with Etienne, though clearly he's like, can we please move forward with this? Yeah. And just that it wasn't an opportunity for them to do that, though I mm-hmm. think that they would have eventually. Yeah. Um, 
And then I think as well with, and I don't think that that was Charlotte's. She, yes, she was interrupting them mm-hmm. from from that evolution happening. But I don't necessarily think that's the reason why. I don't think that maybe Lucy was ready yet for that transformation with Etienne. It it had to be somebody from the outside. Yeah, and 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 I want to like let's talk about the the reason why Charlotte is acting the way she is. Yeah, the big the secret. The reason that Charlotte is acting the way that she is is because. On her birthday, when she was, I think, 16? Yeah, it was, like, probably her sweet 16. Like, her boyfriend attempts to rape her. Mm-hmm. And and Lucy sees this, hits him on the head with a rock. She interrupts it. And then he, he, her boyfriend starts to rape Lucy, who seems to be 12, 10, oh, something fucking... Little. Like, he tries to rape a child. And so, Lucy and Charlotte kill Charlotte's boyfriend. Yeah. To which... As self-defense. In self-defense. Completely self-defense. Completely justifiable homicide. Then they hide the body. Right. Because they're children. Yeah. Because they're children. And because, like, we still know today that today, like, if a woman was to come forward with that, like, there's a better chance that she's going to be convicted, like, in the courts of of just straight up murder rather than protecting themselves from a fucking rapist. It's a very believable situation. They bear they hide his body in the swamp. And then but they leave they they leave his hat. They misplace his hat. Correct. And we later find out that the hat was found not by Etienne, Their which friend. is which is what Lucy thinks, but in fact by Matt, Eric Stoltz's character as a child, and he has come back to punish them. Well, he's come back for revenge for his brother's death. Right. Because the rapist boyfriend was Eric Stoltz's older brother. Right. Correct. And just on a side note, I just listened to a a true crime podcast about, and it's very sad guys, so I'm just telling you, about a little 11-year-old girl who was babysitting and got raped and murdered while babysitting two little kids. And when the attorney general was discussing it, it might have been the lawyer. I could be remembering that wrong. But one, either the attorney general or or the lawyer, one of the lawyers discussing the case, implied that she, you know, might have been having sex with somebody else because she was hot. She was 11. So your point of children not being believed mm-hmm. and women not being believed for the assault against them is a really important point, which goes back to the LA Times review that dismisses this as if the the director took his material too seriously pisses me off. Yeah. Because again, it is accurate. It is yeah. accurate. This is what happens. Yeah, and... and- the idea of taking rape too seriously is, uh, it, it, it's, go fuck yourself. Yeah. It, it's not, it's not up for discussion. No. Like, like it's just like, there's nothing. Yeah. No, there's, there's no, there's no asking for it. There's no what, what you wore. There's no, you're in the wrong place. There, there's, there's no, none of that. There, there's taking it too lightly. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. That's it. Yeah. Like it's a, it's it's fucking death is seriousness like it's it's nothing else so the fact that like so this is this is the cause of what all of uh charlotte's actions are in her formative moment at 16 with her boyfriend he tries to rape her and for the for the repercussions that we see she is trying to stop any sort of sexual activity between her sister and anyone as a repercussion for the act that was done to her. Mm-hmm. Because what happened is you are raped and you have to murder somebody. You are attacked and you have to murder something somebody. Sure, she was very formative years for yeah, her. It, it, it's and it's not like, handled. It, She's it, not doing mental health treatment. It's presented as one-to-one. Because later, like, literally later in the film, she, like, when Lucy is having sex with Matt, mm-hmm. when Lucy and Matt are having sex... Charlotte's upstairs going through the drawers and putting on the dress she was wearing when she was assaulted. Yeah. And the film, like the film is making an incredible tie between her sexual assault, her sister's sexual debut Mm -hmm. and this man. Yeah. Like it is, it, it could not be clearer what the film is trying to say, which is there is so much trauma surrounding sex. Yeah. That we ha- we do not discuss or get into. We have fantasies about it that we don't understand and that you can't explain. Mm-hmm. That, that if you talk in pleasant company, whatever the fuck that means, in in, in just mm-hmm. public, people are going to be like, well, that's a fucking weirdo talking about that. Mm-hmm. Like, w- like, this film 
ties all those little buttons together and goes, no, 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 they're all one thing. Like having a discussion about sex, the person that you have sex with, what that means to you, how that means, how that, how that applies is an incredibly complicated and convoluted thing that we do not have the words or generally time and patience and sympathy to discuss. And the film does an excellent job of tying all those things together in that moment and then showing, because this is the theme of the film, that it's all bad. Mm-hmm. Like that you can you can like in the end of the film there's there's a wedding, so it's almost like a Shakespeare like it ends with a it comedy. Ends with a but like but it's still like no, all these things are really tied together in a horrific like hard manner. Yeah. There is a lot of trauma. This is a movie about trauma. Mm-hmm. Which is you know, interesting. Yeah. It's always interesting and not to be dismissed. Yeah. And, and it never shies away from the fact that it's about trauma. And I think that's something that's interesting about cult movies, underground film, indie film. We have an opportunity to play with difficult subject matter, to play with it through different lenses like ghosts and psychological trauma mm-hmm. and fog yeah. in the bayou. Yeah. Um, Use archetypes to tell very specific ideas out and then mm-hmm. allow the 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 cultural understanding to change and morph with the film and then mean have the film or piece of art mean something different. Right. Whereas mainstream a more kind of corporate mm-hmm. cinema, it doesn't allow for that. Yeah. It doesn't allow for that nuance or even not even nuance sometimes sometimes just messiness. Mm-hmm. Like it, everything has to be so perfectly tied up and so clear and so direct. And there's a messiness to underground cinema well it ties to something that we were talking about a while ago or earlier today in fact those sorts of films those sorts of corporate films are uninterested in in any sort of convolution any sort of conflict any sort of thing that isn't a binary answer like this is right or bad right like any sort of thing that can make a conflict muddied mm-hmm. you're like no no we can't do that because we like we can have morally uh uh conflicted characters but they'll make the right decision and we all end. know exactly what the right decision is we've anticipated what that right decision is so that when they get there we're like yeah we all made this right decision together it, it is such a boring christian way of telling a film be like well the moral is going to be this or the television show the moral is going to be this they're gun like they're either going to be punished for their uh, for their bad actions or they're going to uh return to the fold like it's comforting yeah that's what it is it's a comforting type of yeah. cinema because you it's predictable mm-hmm. and it's there to to kind of be the opiate of the masses to calm everybody down yeah you're in a crisis you're in a pandemic you're in a war yeah like let's not worry about questioning anything but art is supposed to make you uncomfortable yeah it's supposed to make you question things and not all of it yeah some of it can be comfy yeah i was watching i was watching this film bilitis the other night and it like it's it's a really interesting film and and the beginning of it it's about the sexual awakening for this female character and her own discovery of her own sexual identity and the beginning of it is she's at a all girls school and one of her friends at night in bed crawls in with her and starts to make sexual advances and she's not quite sure how she feels about it but she goes along with it and the friend is like just pretend I'm this person and they kind of and they have the sexual moment and when you're watching the performance by the lead actor, you see her go through all these different kind of confusing, conflicted emotions. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean, and it doesn't, to me, it doesn't read as her being raped or sexually assaulted. She just doesn't understand it. And so she's going through the emotions. And because we don't have that sort of moral ambiguity in a lot of films, or the films don't have the strength of character to be like, Let's be morally ambiguous. Yeah, let's see what happens. Let's see what an audience says to what they see here. Seeing a human being struggle through a decision is a hard thing to do because we want them to be quick and easy. And most decisions that we have to make that actually change our lives are very difficult. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time for us to actually come to terms with what that decision meant. Well, sure, because that what's interesting about that discussion is we're starting to develop a language that's Mm -hmm. different. I think that that's 
a great example of the conversation right now about non-binary mm-hmm. and pronouns. It didn't, when we were in our 20s, this didn't exist. I mean, right. it, it did. It just, nobody would talk about it. This language didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't have an opportunity to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really exciting that this is is all happening now. So it's exciting when a film does something like that, even if... In the end, it isn't a positive experience for the character. Again, these are actors yeah. who are performing. Yeah. This is not real life, people. Yeah. And so we're asking questions and we're putting the audience into an uncomfortable position to hopefully talk with their people mm-hmm. and and talk to their therapists and talk, 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 and try to figure out what it means to them. Yeah. It, and it's really important for art to continue to be that thing and not just be the corporate speak of like, here's a simple answer because we don't need more propaganda in our art. Yeah. We, we, yes, we have enough of that in in, in our television, in our ads, Mm -hmm. in, in, in in everything that somebody says uh, to try to convince you of something or other, like, like being, being conflicted is, is a genuinely powerful place to be Mm. because it means that you don't know. And, and it means that you have a power over somebody who does. Somebody who does, like, it's, it's. I think it's almost misbegotten the way that we present uh, unsure versus sure. Because somebody who's sure, like, they're definitive. They're just going to do that. Like, great. But somebody who is not sure, I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's a fucking roll of the dice. Like, who knows what that person's going to fucking do? The, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know how they're going to act. And sometimes, like, that can be explosive and, and negative and, and, and has its own complications and 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 issues with it but sometimes being somebody who just doesn't know how they're going to respond to something but has a good understanding of their own character and own belief structure and what they want to achieve that makes you a more interesting person Mm -hmm. And, and and that's kind of the type of film or person that i'm interested in watching yeah well said so there's an, the, another scene that I love in the film is uh, the scene in which Cleve talks to Charlotte. The first time we meet Cleve, Cleve and Charlotte are, have been in a long-term relationship, and they meet at a dance to because uh, it's a social event it's what to they do. do. Like imagine going to dances like as that an adult, fun. Like like just be like, hey, there's going to be a band, and we're going to dance. Like that sounds like. After being in pandemic for two years, fuck yeah. Like, yeah. Like weird ass dances where everybody knows the moves and, and nobody's there for anything other than just having a good time. That sounds fucking it extraordinary. Does sound wonderful. But they go to like he like they meet at the dance and Cleve has this wonderful thing, a wonderful little monologue talking to to Charlotte. And it's it's something that I love in cinema, that I absolutely adore in cinema, in writing in cinema. When somebody tells a story in a in a situation that has a lot of people around so that somebody else can't make a, a histrionic response. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying histrionic because uh, it's Charlotte and it's a, a female. Yeah. It's just anybody blowing up at the other person for telling them something that they don't want to hear or mm-hmm. they're not prepared to hear. I just like, I love how the speech goes where he tells her that he knows a guy that he helped solve a problem for. And the problem was, that the girl just didn't like him, didn't like him that much. And I, and there's something so remarkably beautiful about the actor who plays Cleve. Uh, yeah, I love him. Dennis, Lip, Dennis Lipscomb, I think his name is, who, as you said earlier, was in a f- wonderful film called Eyes of Fire. Eyes on Fire. And he is, he is so lovely in this. He feels beaten down, sad. And yet, and yet, I don't feel depressed for him. I don't feel like he's gonna just like drink himself to death. No. There's just something really like. Well, that moment right after he tells her that they're breaking up because uh-huh. he's just so heartbroken by the fact that she just he has to come to terms with the fact that she doesn't really love him enough, mm-hmm. and he believes he deserves better than that. Yeah, it's so wonderful and heartbreaking. It's bittersweet. It is bittersweet, and then having him Im- immediately be pulled away and say, "You're the sheriff. You got to dance. You do that certain dance that everybody loves. Do the yeah. dance." And you know that, oh yeah, he brought her here because 
he feels like this is his community and he has support and you know he feels like a he feels like shit after you have to break up with someone because you think they don't love you enough. Yeah. And so you need the support of being like, see, all these people like me, and yeah. I'm going to do this little dance and show you that I'm okay, which hopefully makes you think that I'm amazing and you actually do want to be with me yeah. and you do want to marry me, which proves to be true. But yeah, that scene where he dances and then he dances. Yeah. And it's just so, oof. There's, there's so much going on in that scene as, for the actor and the text of the film and the subtext of the film. There's just... So much lovely work happening. Mm-hmm. Like and how I can't, much of an outsider she is. Yeah. Because she leaves. Yeah, you she see leaves. that she's like disappears into the crowd. Yeah. Like it's it tells you so much about the world that they live in. And it's it's frankly a scene like that that I'm like, how the fuck can somebody watch this film and think that it's like beating you over the head with what's happening? Because that text, if you got the text, if you watched it and read it, then the film did exactly what it said it was going to do. It was going to teach you something about these characters and you learn something right there. And then you can apply that knowledge, why they're isolated, why he still likes her because of how he speaks to her. You can tell that he's so heartbroken about the fact that he knows that it's not going to work right now, even if he tried his whole life to make it work and that he is kind of willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much fucking text there. Like I, like I adore that scene. Me too. It's a wonderful scene. Yeah, it's it w- really important mm-hmm. because it does show her outsiderness, mm-hmm. but it also shows that he is, well, it makes him coming back realistic. Yeah. Like it makes it, it shows how much he loves her, but also how strong he is for himself. Yeah. And it, his own self-worth. And it also does something very important, which is how he plays it, how they, how they all choose to play it. He doesn't come across mean Mm -mm. he doesn't come across as another option of who could be the villain of the film because there are moments of the film that it feels like it touches into the slasher element as as what is revealed to be matt later is killing some people around or killing the dog like we don't we don't the dog yeah we never see cleave as a possible uh as a possible suspect no we don't and you could, in a different film, you could make him a suspect and be like, let's throw a little, let's throw a little light this way and check it out. But in this film, they're like, no, no, no. Cleve's never. No, he's, he's a big hug. Yeah. He, like, yeah, he is a big hug. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just, he's just a guy that you're like, okay, like, if I need safety and not too much excitement, that's, it's Cleve. And that's a, and knowing his work from Eyes on Fire, uh-huh. that is a really good portrayal that he is doing. Yes. That is not necessarily written in the script because his work on Eyes on Fire, he's he's a scumbag. Yeah, he's he's a, he's a shit horrible. He's just gross, and you hate him, and you just want to be away from him. And he's mm-hmm. toxic as fuck. He toxic masculinity ruins the party again, and he is the one who does. Yeah. So the fact that he is so the opposite of that in this yeah. really shows his his strength and his the spectrum of his work. Yeah, and I think that. Like, I think that that's something that that's also really strong throughout the film. Like all the supporting characters from Etienne to. Uh, oh, I love to, the, the lady with her kids. Her yeah. Miss daughter. Beetleham. Oh, she's so good. Like, like all these characters, all these supporting characters fill out the side of the film mm-hmm. in such a wonderful way that, you know, that it's one of the three leads that the the bad thing is and it's really comes down to believing whether it's charlotte or matt Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day it's really clear that it's got to be matt yeah uh but because like why now would she be killing her sister right there's a bunch of people there and it's one of those things where like the great writer uh was it ernesto gestaldi who wrote a whole bunch of the giallo films that i love talked about that at the end, a good mystery has to make sense, regardless mm-hmm. of how wild it is. Because if it doesn't make logical sense, then, you, then you're then you just going to lose the thread. You're going to be like, oh, well, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, cool that all these things magically happen, but fuck you. Like, that couldn't possibly be. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Matt has done this and the, the fact that Matt is the one doing it is the only way that it makes logical sense. But there's enough information in the film to make you feel that Charlotte could be doing some shady shit to her sister. Mm-hmm. Or Etienne. Yeah, or I Etienne. Think he, he's he's definitely, a, he's sus. Yeah, and t- until he gets arrowed to death. Right, which is such a 
bummer way to die. Yeah. It, it, yes, it sucks. Arrowed, and at least he doesn't get eaten by the alligator that we earlier see, which is like the opposite of Chekhov's gun. You could have been eaten by an alligator. Yes. That time we were in the Everglades. Yeah, but I wasn't, luckily. Or if I was and I'm a ghost now, like, <gasps> I'm a very productive ghost. Ghost podcaster. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I really, like, there's so much of this film that I love. Etienne, the guy who plays Etienne is fantastic. Yeah. Like, though I think that his Creole accent sometimes goes in and out. Questionable. But I don't, I don't. Like, his French wasn't terrible. Yeah, I, I the the thing is, I don't really care. Mm-mm. Like, maybe that makes me a bad movie watcher because I don't really give a shit about... It means you have a good suspension of disbelief. Yeah, it's it's the same sort of... It, it would be the same sort of suspension of disbelief that when I'm watching a Jello film and I'm like, oh, you know, this guy, this actor is obviously speaking English. That one's obviously not speaking English. And I have no idea what language that other person is speaking. To explain what Austin is saying right now. Yeah. When you watch a Jalo film. Or a lot of Italian films of the 1960s and 70s. They weren't recording audio on set, and they often had many different actors from different nationalities playing the parts. So they would have the actor perform in their native language and just dub it. Yeah. Because everything was going to be dubbed. It didn't matter. Yeah. Uh, Which is an, it's really interesting because it is fascinating how quickly, once you understand that and you're not mad about it if you're if you just release that pressure to be like why isn't it lining up uh-huh. you don't speak italian anyway so like what's the problem it's yeah. going to be subtitled yeah um yeah or maybe you do i'm not judging you if you do speak italian and you're like why is it dubbed weirdly but the point is just let your brain go stop mm-hmm. judging and critiquing mm-hmm. and just enjoy the piece and then once you kind of learn that rhythm and how to do that then a lot of other films get opened up to you yeah it's if you're if you're spending your time watching shitty reality shows, you're already suggesting that you're not into perfection. So why why are you limiting your perfection to just the English language? Are you that much of a xenophobe? No, no, no. That's a really interesting question, though. Like with the onset of YouTube, with the reality TV show phenomenon, like all these booms of, of mediocre to subpar video contents, mm-hmm. are we in a position now to kind of bring back in these cult films, this underground film movement that people don't know about it, to watch and, and be in a better place to absorb it when yep. previous to this, the only stuff you had was either primetime TV or corporate movies. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to, to try to show people. Well, so that's what we're doing with these movies. Anyway, yeah. we're picking stuff that hopefully you haven't seen before. Or if you have that you you don't remember that you've watched and you'd like to watch again. I don't know. I just really like this movie. Yeah, so do I. I think, I think it's, it's cool. I think it's a gem of a film. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not perfect. Mm-mm. No. But there's so much There's so much good in it. Jennifer Jason Lee is phenomenal in it. She's really good. Like, it's... it's like, Eric Stoltz is really good. They're on fire. Yeah, they're... Like the, sec- the sexual chemistry between them is like, whoo! And, and knowing that they were dating at the time makes sense, but it also is wonderful that they were able to capture this. Like, it's... Yeah. A, like, it's nice to see this fiery intensity between these two performers mm-hmm. and, and, and know... Not know that it's coming from a place of actual desire, because who gives a shit? No. Like, but, like, the... The fact that we cap that the film captured this desire between these two people and we see it mm-hmm. is wonderful. There's enough films where you're like, yeah, I don't really think that those two people like each other. No, yeah, much. I know it's so. They weird. probably hate kissing each other, right? You're like, like I don't. I think these two people loved kissing each other. It was I, fun. I think they love fucking making out. It was, and and then you know, then there's so much '80s hair. So yes. you know, what's not to like? Yeah, and, and and to get back, khaki pants and khaki pants. Yeah, with pleats. Yeah. You're welcome. So I think there's one thing that we did discuss mm-hmm. that we just want to pose as a question yeah. to everyone to sort of think about. Like if you watch this movie again or as you're reflecting on the film, the thing that we both noticed was the absence. Mm-hmm. And that is the absence of anyone of color. Mm-hmm. This is Louisiana in the bayou. Mm-hmm. And it is apparently an entirely white space. Yeah, And we just ask the question for you mm-hmm. what would this film be what would it look like if we actually had some diversity here how would it adjust the story how would it change things yeah. would it what is going on here there's well, a there's a uh, critique we once heard i think it's Godar said it. it the best critique is to make another film yeah so of course that would mean make another film and hey you know if you guys want to make another film yeah make sister sister part two yeah and change it up go for it 
Yeah. Austin, what would you say to that? I think there's an interesting uh, thought experiment and, and I would love to see it played out of what would it look like with casting anybody of color in any of the roles mm-hmm. in the two sister roles, but keep everybody else, uh, everybody else uh, white mm-hmm. uh, cast uh, Etienne and the, the sheriff as a person of color. Like how does this, what does it bring up? What stories and narratives do we get to tell? Do we get to, maybe not do we get to tell, but do we get to experience because we are adding what actually is the American story to this American film? Right. Because right now it like the film, like, as we said, I like the film a lot, but it feels like a floor model film. Like mm-hmm. these are all, this is what you should be looking for or the, that is the, the correct or, or mm-hmm. beautiful, yeah. hot, white, young. Yeah. What, what does it do to the film and the narrative? If we start looking at it and saying that there is a racial experience in America, it just becomes a different film. If we start looking at casting people of color in this and it becomes, I think a more interesting film Mm-hmm. Because it becomes more a, complex. Yeah, a more complex film. Yeah. And one that we can't just dismiss out of hand because it's kind of like other films. Right. And I think that this is part of the conversation in cinema mm-hmm. is that in most of the history of Western cinema, there is an erasure of all race. Mm-hmm. There is white people. End of story. Yeah. And that is something that everyone hopefully within cinema today, is working to change. Everyone is mindful of, at least that's what we're hoping for. And that's what we're working on with our stories. And so it's, it, is an interesting, uh, it is an interesting thought experiment when you watch older cinema mm-hmm. to ask yourself, is there an erasure of something? Mm-hmm. What is missing? Queerness is missing. Yeah. Diversity is missing. It doesn't feel authentic to actually where this is taking place because we have no representation of X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And it's just something that we suggest that as you kind of build up your viewing history of cinema, mm-hmm. sometimes to pay attention to yeah. and reflect on. Yeah, and, and, and start to demand in the stories that you watch and see, like these things that just kind of find, that you find interesting about what it is to experience life as a human being. Mm-hmm. The film deals with her sexual awakening, with Lucy's sexual awakening, which to a lot of people still is a taboo conversation. Mm-hmm. And if we're having one taboo conversation, why stop there? Mm-hmm. Like, And it's not to say that a woman's sexual uh, debut and her own sexual identity and discovery is, uh, or their own sexual debut and discovery is not enough. Mm-hmm. But... In a film where that isn't the only subject on its mind, why not tell other subjects? Why not Why not continue to force a conversation into the public domain that needs to be had, mm-hmm. which is what, what does it mean to be an American right now? Yeah. I like those questions. So there you go. Chew on that. Mm-hmm. See what you think. And uh, feel free to jump into our Instagram and uh, DM us some thoughts you have. Yeah. And share with us what yeah. you think. So, mm-hmm. I think it's time. What what time is it? It's time to find out what you want to recommend to stumble upon next. I mentioned it in the uh, in the podcast earlier, but I think that uh, Sergio Martino's film, The Case of the Scorpion Tail, is an incredible film to kind of stumble upon. It it I described it a little bit earlier, but it's a film about a woman whose husband dies in a plane crash she has to travel to greece to get the inheritance a private eye follows her there uh and the private eye is kind of the villain of the film and Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting film because it it does ask the question how many chances are we going to give this white guy to be innocent even though he's obviously guilty Mm -hmm. and it also does some interesting narrative things where it's like you know what these characters that you think are important we're just going to kill off like they don't need to be here anymore. They've served their purpose. And it just is a free flowing kind of narrative in a way that not a lot of cinema is. Emily, do you have something that you would like to share? I do. I do. I have something that I would like to recommend to stumble upon next. And that is Eve's Bayou, which is directed by Cassie Lemons. And this w- that was her debut as a director. So this was Bill Condon's directorial debut. And Eve's Bayou is Cassie Lemons directorial debut so that's a debut you can watch 
And it's also taking place in the South. It's also hot and sweaty. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's re- it's a fantastic film. It yeah. is so good. Mm-hmm. It is so good. So, yeah, I want to recommend that. Okay. To stumble upon next. So thank you all for joining us today. We really enjoyed talking about Sister Sister with you. Yeah, and, and we apologize for the lateness of this podcast. We're in the middle of sound mixing our film, so we're almost done with it now. Mm-hmm. So like, We're getting so close, everybody. So we, we might be having a little bit of an odd schedule as we continue forward because we're just finishing off mm-hmm. uh like a feature film. Yeah, feature film. It's a lot of work, turns out. Turns out. It turns out out it's not a small undertaking. It's so much work. And then, you know, you work too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So, thank you. But you can get all the updates about the film as well on our Instagram and our Twitter. Uh, Follow along. Please reach out. Like, we're we're very sociable. We are at Fishtown Films on Instagram and Twitter. Yes. We respond better to Instagram than Twitter. Yes. Simply because I can never remember the password to Twitter. That's fine. Uh, if you reach out to us on LinkedIn, I may notice it in six to ten years. Yes. So please do. Yeah. Uh, also, <laughs> if you find us on Facebook, we are very so very rarely there. I think I was on sometime two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, sure. I, reach out there if you want to I, not hear from us. I kind of imagine that my uh, my update, my page update on Facebook is just cobwebs. <laughs> is that an option? Because I want to click on that one. <laughs> no, I'm not going to click on it. I'm just going to assume it's I happening. I want spiders. Like, like computer spiders are just building webs. <laughs> so yeah, so don't do that either. Yeah. But do follow us on Instagram. We'll yeah. be posting in our stories, the movie that we're watching next. Yeah. Hint, hint, it's uh, coming soon. And we will be telling you about more of what we're doing with the film uh-huh. as we're finishing up Citywide and figuring out the next steps for it. As well as all the other work that we're making, yeah. which is apparently a lot. Yeah. There's it, so many things. N- n- never not something. No. And we just want to say thank you for listening with us today. We had yeah. a really good time. Yeah. Thank- we enjoyed talking about Sister Sister. Uh, thank you. Have a lovely day, morning, afternoon, whatever. Yeah. Do whatever you like and drink some coffee or tea or whatever makes you happy. Yeah. And we'll be back in about two weeks. Yes. Bye. Bye.